hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 13. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like sand, which is on the seashore, in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash. I kept forgetting how to say that. In Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Good morning. Don't you love the glorious Christmas music? We get to sing and enjoy together, worship God together. We lived in Lake Tahoe for several years, and during that time I became friends with a charter boat captain. He had a nice boat, and he always kept it anchored out in the lake, away from everything else. And I asked him about that one time, and I said, there's some big storms that come here at Lake Tahoe. Wouldn't it be safer to maybe have it tiered to a dock somewhere or something else? He said, no, not at all. In fact, it's the most secure place. Let me show you something. Took me out to his boat, and I saw that down in the water was a huge cement block and a chain coming up, and his boat was anchored to that. So that whenever storms came up, I watched that boat go through several storms, and the boat would be tossed about on the surface of the water, but it was anchored firmly, and so it couldn't hit the rocks or the shore or anything else. It was kept safe. It held firm. The boats that were 
simply anchored, they dropped an anchor into the sand, on the other hand, the anchor would be drugged through the sand and they could hit rocks and other boats and whatever was around them. The question for this morning, for us, all of us, is to what are we anchored? To what are you anchored? What gives your life stability in the storms of life? Your own opinions? Your own feelings? What seems right to you in your own mind? What the world says around you? What your parents have told you? To what are you anchored? Or are you anchored to God and His Word? Deep down underneath, you might look the same on the surface, but the real question of life really is to what are you anchored? You can't avoid the storms. None of us can. We all have to face the storms. (laughs) But we can choose what we anchor our lives to, and what we anchor ourselves to will determine the course of our lives. Samuel, last week, we saw him as we looked at the qualities of a godly man. He was a man who was firmly anchored in God and His truth. But today we're looking at Saul, King Saul, the qualities of a godless man. They don't look that different on the surface. But Saul's life is anchored in self. He was exposed to the truth. He knew the truth, but he chose to anchor his life elsewhere. And the results are devastating for him. So as we look at this passage, 1 Samuel 13, ask yourself, to what am I anchored? Am I a Samuel or am I a Saul? Lord, as we look together at this passage, we recognize that uh, we can easily fool ourselves about what we're really trusting in. May your Spirit bring us awareness of what's really going on in our own hearts that we might learn to trust you more, to anchor ourselves firmly in you and in your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the qualities of a godless leader, a person who lives as though God isn't really there. And first we want to look at how a person responds when facing difficulty, because it's really the storms, right, that reveal where you're anchored, (laughs) whether you're really anchored to something firm that can hold you in the storms. Verse 1 of chapter 13 begins this way, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years in Israel. If you have the English Standard Version, you'll notice the numbers aren't there because apparently through the years the texts have been corrupted. We don't know the exact numbers. We don't know exactly how old Saul was when he began to reign and exactly how long, but probably close to 40-some years he reigned. The point, I think, for us to recognize is that Saul, though he lived as a godless man most of his life, God still gave him a long reign gave him lots of opportunities to trust him. And God's grace is amazing towards us. Even when we don't trust him well, he continues to give us many, many opportunities to trust him. Then in verse 2 it says this, Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each 
to his tent. So Saul's making his battle plans. And he just won a great victory through the Lord's help. It was clearly the Lord's help that helped him back in chapter 11. And it says in that chapter that in this battle, he, uh, God brought together, raised up an army of 330,000 people. It was a huge army. But what do we see in Saul now? We see that he seems to be a little bit arrogant. I don't need 330,000. In fact, I think 3,000 will work from here on. So he sends everybody else home, and he only keeps 3,000. 2,000 with him, 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. He just keeps the elite troops. And I want to set the context for you just so through this map so you can kind of see what's going on in this chapter because sometimes it helps just to understand. You can see that's the Dead Sea. So Israel runs this way. This is north over here. That's east over there. And this is the high country, the hill country of Judah. And so in this area, it's the highest part. It's this spine of mountains that runs down Israel. And so that's where he is in Michmash, right up here in the high country. He's got this strategic location where if anyone's going to attack him, they have to come up and attack him up at Michmash, up on the hill. Then we see in verse 3 that Jonathan steps out in faith. Jonathan struck the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gabah, and the Philistines heard of it. Jonathan is Saul's son. He steps out and says he struck the garrison. Actually, the literal word in Hebrew is pillar. And so some interpreters have said, well, that must be a garrison, I guess. But more recently, the scholars think that probably it stands for a governor, a pillar, or someone who stands above everyone else. And so what Jonathan did is he stepped out and he attacked and killed the governor of the local area there of the Philistines. And the Philistines heard about it. (laughs) And as you can imagine, we'll see in a moment, they were not happy. Jonathan, we don't see it so much in this passage, but we see later on, Jonathan is one who is firmly anchored in God. He trusts God, and that's why he steps out here. He believes that God is with him, and so he steps out with his men, kills the governor, but it upsets the Philistines. They heard about it. So, it says that Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, Saul purposely uses a demeaning term here. The word Hebrews as a name for the nation of Israel was a demeaning term used by other nations to put them down. Bruce Walke, the commentator and Old Testament scholar, says this, Saul rallies Israel to do battle, calling them Hebrews to remind them that they are subjects second-class citizens, deprived of their own sovereign state, similar to their situation in Egypt. Come on out, men. Let's fight. He's trying to get them angry, get them upset, get them going to empower them. But notice what he says, verse 4. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, the governor of the Philistines. Now, wait a minute. Who struck the governor? It's Jonathan, right? 
Interesting. We're learning something about Saul here. He's taking credit for what he didn't do. You see, when you're firmly anchored in self, in the sand of self, you're always trying to have to cover for yourself. You're always trying to make your left self look good. You take credit for things that really you didn't do. And we're just getting hints now of where Saul really have his, has his life anchored. And when we try to make ourselves look good, we bend the facts a little bit to make ourselves look better. That's always an indication that you are anchored not in the Lord, but in yourself. When you have to try to make yourself look good in other people's eyes, it shows that you fear people more than God. And you know those things we do, and we've all done it. Little exaggerations. Just saying, you know, a little more. Yeah, there were a few, there were maybe 12 people at the Bible study, but you say, yeah, we had about 15 to 20. Or, yeah, this project, you know, it brought in this many dollars when it wasn't really quite that much at work. Or all those little things we do just to try to make ourselves look good. That's a sign that we're anchored in ourselves in the sand of self, not in the Lord. We spin the facts to impress others, to make ourselves look good. Well, what's the result of all this? Israel heard the news, and also they heard that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. That they stunk. The Philistines are hopping mad. (laughs) The word for stink there is a word that's used for rotting fish in Exodus. I mean, they smell bad to the Philistines and the Philistines are angry and out to get them. They're like a nest of hornets you've stepped in and they're fine until you stir them up and now they're really upset. So what does Saul do? It says he summons the people to Gilgal. Again, back on the map. Here's the high country. That's the strategic place you want to hold. But it says he summoned the people down here to Gilgal, which was down by the Jordan River, down in the flat plain, way, way below the high country. He gave up the strategic location. And you may say, why? Why would he do that? Why would he give up the high country? Well, uh, you may recall, because Samuel told him to. Do you remember? Back in chapter 10... Verse 7 and 8 says, It shall be when these signs, Samuel is talking to Saul, it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So Samuel said, okay, go to Gilgal. You want my blessing? You want me to do offerings for you as king? Go down to Gilgal and wait there for me. So Saul does do that. He knows he needs Samuel's blessing or he's in trouble. So at this point, the Philistines are angry. Saul gathers the people down in, uh, down in Gilgal, down in the low country. And listen to what happens. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. So what do they do? They take the high country. 
Michmash, where Saul just vacated it, they come up and now they've got the strategic location and they've got a massive army. I mean, they include 30,000 chariots. This is an, almost an unbelievably huge army. And the, the Israelites had no chariots. And the chariots were the tanks of the day. They would go roaring into these infantry and they would just run them over with the horses. They'd be armored and they would defeat them and crush them. So they've got a massive army, terrifying in force. And what happens <laughs> to Israel? When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, yeah, I'll say so, <laughs> then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him, which weren't very many anymore, were trembling. So all the people who have gone down this area, they're hiding all over the place, and a bunch of them just run across the Jordan River and head into foreign territory. They are terrified. This is a bad situation. Israel is in big trouble. Why did they all run away? See, because they were living by what they could see. They were anchored in self, self-preservation. I, we better take care of ourselves. We, we better get out of here. So what have we seen in these first few verses in Saul? Let's just summarize a little bit. Let's look at it a little more closely. Pride, taking credit where you didn't deserve it. Sending away the people because I don't need them. I can handle this. Pride, passivity because he doesn't step out. Jonathan steps out to trust the Lord and enter into battle, but not Saul. Fear of others. He's controlled by his circumstances. These are all evidence of someone who's anchored in themselves. Who they're trying to get their security from the sand of self. They're evidence of someone who does not have a heart for God first. So he or she gets blown about by every storm that comes up. I'm not saying this isn't a big storm. This is hurricane strength. But see, what allows you to be secure in the storms of life, any storm, is being anchored in the Lord. Saul's anchor is not holding. So verse 8 and 9, Now he waited seven days. Remember, Samuel told him to wait seven days, right? According to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. <laughs> and the people were scattering from him, getting worse. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering himself. In a battle, you want to make sure, number one, you hold the strategic place. <laughs> you want to strike fast and first with as many troops as you can muster. But Samuel... God, through Samuel, was clearly testing Saul, wasn't he? <laughs> he made him wait. His troops are scattering. He had to move off the strategic place. And things are looking worse and worse all the time. This had to feel terrifying to Saul. You see, circumstances begin to get terrifying when you are depending on yourself. And that's what happens to him. 
Now, it had to seem crazy to Saul. I understand that. It looks pretty crazy to go to Gilgal, to wait those seven days. But God's ways are not our ways. He knows better than us. He has a bigger plan He's working out. And if we put our ways ahead of Him, if we try to get Him to fit our plans, we end up in more trouble. So what does Saul do? He does the sacrifice in direct disobedience to the Word of God, which says only priests should do the sacrifices, and in direct disobedience to what Samuel had said, wait seven days, then I will come and do the sacrifices. But he does it himself. He knows he needs God's help, but he disobeys to get it. He thinks he's getting it. (laughs) You see, when you're anchored in self, you will try to use God to fit your plans, to manipulate God to get what you want. Lord, I'll serve you forever. I'll have my quiet time every day if you'll just give me this because I really want this. I mean, my plan just seems so perfect, God, so whatever it takes, I'll, I'll do so you'll give me what I want. And you notice how God really doesn't respond to those kind of prayers? God, God won't be manipulated. He won't be mocked. Either He is Lord or I am. Either He's in charge or I am. Either He calls the shots or I do. And He will not settle for less than being Lord. We just sung several songs about Jesus is Lord. Do we believe that? Is He Lord? Are we anchored in His Lordship or in our own? Why does He do that? Why does He shake us up? Why does He put us in situations that cause us to have to face how little we trust Him? It's because He loves us. He loves us enough and He knows that we aren't capable of running our own lives properly. And so He puts us in situations where we have to learn to trust Him more and more with our own lives. So that's a picture, those first nine verses really of what happens with a heart, a Godless heart, when difficulty comes, when the storms of life come. What happens to a godless heart when confronted with sin? Verses 10 through 15. Well, verse 10, he's offered the sacrifice. Samuel shows up. says, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to bless him. Now picture this. He knows he's disobeyed. Samuel certainly knows he disobeyed. But he goes out and he says, Hey, it's great to see you. God bless you, Samuel. What's he doing? He's denying, ignoring his sin. (laughs) He's minimizing what he's done. So easy to do, isn't it? To try to minimize what we've done. And then in verse 11 to 12, he says, but Samuel confronted him about it. He said, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw, notice that word, because I saw. Saul is one who lives by what he sees, not by the Word of God. And so he says, because I saw three things. That the people were scattering from me. My army's leaving. (laughs) This is terrifying. Secondly, I saw that you did not come within the appointed time, Samuel. What do you hear there? 
blame, right? <laughs> hey, it's your fault, Samuel. If you'd been here on time, I wouldn't have had to do this. You messed up, Samuel. I saw that you didn't come. And third, that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. There's a huge army right up on the hill, Samuel. In case you wondered. <laughs> Therefore, I said, he saw, so he said. He determined in his own heart. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I love that. He's basically saying, I had no choice. I really had to disobey God. (laughs) You know, because the circumstances were so upsetting to me, I had no choice. So I forced myself to do it. I didn't really want to, but I had no choice because you were too late. Wow. Sounds like all of us, really. When we anchor ourselves in self, then we've got to protect self. We've got to make self look good. We've got to try to deny the sins of self. We have to justify, blame, deflect, and we can't own our sin. And all throughout the Scriptures, God is just saying, if you'll simply just own your sin, if you'll just say, I blew it, period. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I did wrong, Lord, I'm sorry. If we will own our sin, He jumps in with His grace and His forgiveness and His goodness, and He says, now I've got something to work with. But as long as we say, well, you know, I I was just so tired, Lord, and and people weren't treating me very well, and so, and, you know, the boss, he's kind of a jerk anyway, and et cetera, we just start making excuses and justify and rationalize. Then God waits. He waits for us to be broken, to admit our sin. Saul did have a choice. He acts like he has no choice. He did have a choice. I know the situation is terrifying. The storm is big. But a better response would have been to not do the sacrifice at all, but to turn to God and say, God, we're in desperate need. Help us. Because you know, every time they did that, God came through for them. Throughout history, that's happened over and over again. I love the story in Second Chronicles 20 about Jehoshaphat, king. A few hundred years later, Saul's the first king. A few hundred years later, Jehoshaphat learned to trust God. It says in chapter 20, verse 2, it says, Some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from all over. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. He handled it totally differently. It's a vast multitude. They're in big trouble. So they cry out to the Lord, Lord, we need your help. And then in verse 20, it says, They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, and he gave them a battle plan. Listen to this battle plan. Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. So here's what he did to marshal the troops. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were routed. They killed each other. And Jehoshaphat and this worship team shows up, and all their enemies are dead. Saul could have done that. Saul could have turned to the Lord. Saul could have sought him. You see, I know our circumstances look terrifying sometimes and we start making our plans, but this should be a reminder to us that no matter how bad things look, God is far bigger than our circumstances. We don't need to fear. We need to anchor ourselves in Him and say, Lord, this is a big storm. It's scary, but I will cling to You and I will not move ahead of You. I will not take charge myself. I will let you be Lord of my life. But Saul didn't do that. He made excuses. And so what happens? Well, in verse 13 and 14, we see God's perspective on Saul's life. Saul's perspective is, I had to do it. I had no choice. Things were just too bad. Here's God's perspective. Samuel said to Saul, number one, you've acted foolishly. Saul, you are a fool. Now let me explain that word fool because in our day and age we use the word fool to say, you know, if someone's a fool, they're just not very rational, they're silly, they do things that don't make sense. That's a fool. But biblically a fool is different. A fool in the Scriptures is someone who lives as though God doesn't exist who makes their own choices. That is a fool in Scriptures. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says, this, says in his heart there is no God. Oh, he might outwardly say, I believe in God, but in his heart, where he's anchored, he lives as though God doesn't exist. He doesn't depend on him. So, that's the essence of foolishness to say, I'm going to root myself, anchor myself in self, and I'm going to run life my way. I may do lip service to God, but deep down, under the water, under the surface, where it's harder to see, I'm in control. I'm on the throne. So the first thing Samuel says is, Saul, you are a fool. Secondly, he says, you've sinned. You've disobeyed. Saul doesn't want to say that, right? He's avoiding it. But Samuel says, you've disobeyed. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. He says, you haven't done it. You've disobeyed. God told you what to do. You failed to do it. That's so important. That's what God says to us. We, we make excuses and he just says, just admit it. You've sinned. You've disobeyed. You haven't done what I've asked. Third, the Lord says to him, you will have consequences, Saul. Again, Saul's trying to deflect, ignore, but he says, now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? I mean, Saul didn't do that many bad things. But it's an indication that the Lord understands our hearts, where we're anchored. Even though we can 
try to live on the surface and pretend like we're really godly people sometimes, but it's where we're anchored, and God sees that. God sees his heart and says, you will have consequences, you will lose your kingdom. When we choose to reject God as our anchor and anchor ourselves in self, and we don't do what he says, there are always consequences. And we lose our ability to be used for God's kingdom as effectively. Fourth, he says to him, not only are you a fool, not only have you disobeyed, not only will you have consequences, but fourth, you've been replaced. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Now, again, God gave Saul probably another 40 years of reigning, so it wasn't immediate. The consequences weren't immediate. God still gave him a lot of grace. But in the long run, God chose somebody else, a man after his own heart. God will accomplish his purposes. He will. And if we won't cooperate with him, he'll find someone else. But it's, life is so much better when we do cooperate and we get to be part of building his kingdom and reigning in life along with him. Otherwise, we get replaced. If over time we continue to keep self on the throne and won't ultimately submit to him. So Samuel says, God is looking for a man, has chosen a man after his own heart. What's a man or a woman after God's own heart? Well, that's someone who's willing to anchor themselves to God, to say, God, I submit to you. I will cling to you. I will do your will no matter what. Bruce Walkie says this about that. I am, Yahweh, is looking for one after his own heart. Coram Deo in the Latin. That is, one who completely surrenders to God's will. Such a person does not despair at false strength. A huge army, for example. (laughs) But relies on God's true strength. That is, a person after God's own heart sees the situation from faith's perspective of the transcendental situation. In other words, sees God at work in this. I don't have to be terrified of what's going on. I'm anchored to God. He's at work. And I don't have to be afraid. A heart that's after God, God's heart, is a heart that is connected with His, lives according to what He says, according to His heart. Samuel's a good example of that. But of course, the greatest example is Jesus Himself. One of the reasons Jesus came as a baby this Christmas season that we celebrate, one of the reasons he came is to show us, we human people here on earth, what true humanity looks like. A humanity that's anchored deeply in our Heavenly Father. Remember, read the Gospels. Remember what Jesus said. All, all the time he kept checking in with the Father and he'd say, I only do what the Father shows me. I and the Father are one. I, I, I only do what he's commanded me to do. And in that most critical time in his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? I don't want to do this, Lord, but not my will, but yours be done. That is the prayer of someone who's firmly anchored in God. 
Verse 15, the passage ends. Samuel rose and went from Gilgal to Gibeah, Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Samuel leaves without doing the sacrifice. Saul is left now with 600 men. A terrifying number if you're anchored in self. (laughs) I'm dead. But a perfect number if you're anchored in God. God loves to use small numbers because in the end then he gets the glory. Storms will come like they did for Saul. But the storms simply reveal what we are anchored in. Self, the sand of self, or in the solid rock himself, our Lord Jesus. And God's looking for people who will live by faith, who have a heart after his, who don't live by sight but by faith, who are willing to cast themselves fully on God and his word and live accordingly. So I guess as we end, the question is, am I, are you willing to be a man or woman after God's own heart? Are you a Saul or a Samuel? Let's pray. Lord, this is challenging. We recognize ourselves in Saul. We do a lot of the things he did. We confess that. But Lord, change us. Help us trust you more deeply. Help us anchor ourselves deeply in you and in your word, your truth that we might live life connected to you, reigning with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.